Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Jim Atkinson. Jim, thanks so much for joining me. Yo, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Jim is a director of Guinness Global Investors, an independent active fund manager specializing in long-only equity funds and private equity investments. As a founder of Guinness Atkinson Funds, Jim has been instrumental in developing the company's philosophy and in identifying the core themes of human progress and profound change. For Jim, there's never been a better time to be a human being, and this attitude shines through in everything he does. I think that's probably the most interesting coda to the a bio that I've done with a stock guy. So thanks for that. No, you're welcome. Okay, so big firm, track record, but you all are about investing in what you refer to as human progress in a thematic approach. Could you maybe help define how you think of human progress and what thematic investing is? Sure. So I know we live in a time of angst and worry, but if you just take a step back and look at the, the, the long picture of history, there never has been a better time to be alive. Uh, and this is something you can measure with virtually any metric you want, you know, uh, per capita wealth, per capita income, availability of healthcare, availability of food, water, uh, poverty rates, mortality, uh, life expectancy. There never has been a better time to be alive than right now. And uh, the other thing that sort of goes along with it, see, and this is something everybody will be familiar with, is change has been happening at, a, at an increasing pace throughout our entire lives. 
And it tends to be accelerating and it tends to be something that puts, it causes discomfort for most people. Even the, even those of us that find it exciting find it somewhat discomfort. But that rapid change tends to be an opportunity for investors to sort of see what's out there. And on the thematic side, you look at our industry, and that is the asset management industry. We tend to classify things and measure things that we can classify and measure. So I'll give you an example. Oh, we love to think about the investment world in uh, asset class or style terms. You know, large cap growth, small cap value, that sort of thing. Uh, and that works very well if you're an investment professional. And I understand that completely. But if you're an investor, you know, someone who buys ETFs or mutual funds or stocks, you don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I need to have more small cap exposure in my portfolio. What you do is you read the newspaper and you sort of see, uh, hey, something's going on with electric vehicles or something's going on with renewable energy or there's really exciting opportunities in China. So you're sort of idea driven. And, and I'm not saying you can't combine these two, but I, I remember, so we've been involved in the um, thematic space, depending on how you look at it, going back as far as 1994. And uh, we launched the China Fund then. And, uh, you know, th that's technically considered a, a, a country fund. I get that. But it was built around this concept that, that China was really going to develop, which, of course, it, it continues to do. But when we started to really offer more thematic concepts in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was view that thematic investing was somehow illegitimate because it didn't fit into this, you know, asset class style box system. And, and it did. I know we have a success on our hands when people have trouble figuring out where to put our funds. So we launched uh, the Guinness Athens and Global Innovators Fund in 1998. Uh, that was before there were any other innovation funds out there. And it was built around this concept of innovation. And that didn't necessarily fit neatly into someone's box. Now, what's interesting is, despite the fact that we took some criticism and people didn't understand the whole concept of thematic, now thematic is all the rage and there's innovation funds and there's other thematic funds out there, which I just think is great. I mean, the idea that we should be catering to the investing public with, with investment products that match how they think, what's wrong with that? And, and that was re really my next question was, you know, thematic investing has now come to a point where you can get really niche and really esoteric. Yeah, which probably is not a great thing, honestly, with the amount of spe specificity and the marketing around it. But could you maybe ex explore a little bit more how this thematic investing concept has developed since you all have been doing this since the 90s? Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to sort of think about it from, from the industry perspective that everybody is trying to come up with the next new clever idea, which, which of course means... There's a lot of smart people in this business, but we're all trying to figure out the next big thing um, before everybody else, which is, which is a very hard thing to do because if it's obvious it's the next big thing, it's obvious, right? So what that has caused to happen is fund launches and launches in particular are more narrowly and narrowly sliced. And I don't know that that's a bad thing though. I mean, you know, it depends on why you're buying it and, and what your thought process is in your investment decisions. And then, of course, it also depends on, on, on what happens going forward and whether that was a good theme or not. Uh, some of the thematic funds that are coming out now might turn out to be fantastic ideas. Some might be short-term trades and some, you know, may work out really well. Some might not. I don't know. And some are going to attract assets and some are not. So, so the, the big three that you all are involved in are, you referenced Asia, 
you referenced innovation already. And then the third is energy. I'd like to kind of explore each of those and let's start with Asia. So that's the one that you referenced first. You've been investing for a long time in China, as you mentioned. We're recording this in September of 2022, where the Chinese economy is having some major setbacks, especially within the tech and the real estate world. There's a lot of uncertainty about geopolitical risk in Southeast Asia in general. Could you maybe walk us through what it was like to be an early investor in China and then how you are thinking about the investment set today? So we started that investment initially only in Hong Kong. Uh, so that was pre-Hong Kong takeover. And our view at the time was that this is a long-term story. There are going to be some you know, periods of upside capture, but there were also going to be some, you know, rather bleak periods. And that turned out to be true. And I would say in, in terms of today's outlook, that doesn't change our view of the long-term story. So to just to give you a little context, we had to go through the handover. That was a big worry. But before we even got to the handover, we had, um, I forget what it was called now, but it was some form of exam, Asian flu, and that not China and Hong Kong uh, on its rear end. And then there was the Asian financial crisis uh, in the late 90s, which really knocked the area down. But, but all through this, China just keeps motoring on. And, you know, you think about China, it's obviously uh, the second largest population uh, in the world or the first largest. It's up there with India and high savings rate, strong work ethic, high education. And it's going to be hard to hold that country back. Once they realize that capitalism, when this goes back to Deng Xiaoping, uh, and I think 1979, and he started allowing these special economic zones, and they unleashed this this capitalism potential in China. Uh, it's just, it's been a motor for growth. And okay, I know we can look at China, and and I can tell you we've had doubters about China from the day we launched that fund. And I'll give you an, but we ran an ad in the Wall Street Journal. This goes back late nineties. And we, the ad basically said that China would eventually become the world's largest economy. And of course, they have a huge advantage with population. They're, they're nowhere near close in terms of per capita GDP, although that number is growing. And I had a guy see that ad and write me a complaint letter that that was never going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet, but, but the writing on the wall is there. I mean, you know, a, a country with that many people is, is just not going to, I mean, there's 1.4 billion people there and it's and. I like I say, strong work ethic, high savings rate. Their economy has been growing much faster than, than many of the economies in the West for a couple, three decades now. That story is still intact, the growth rates are slowing. So now you, you ask me about the current environment. Yeah, it, it looks a little bit bleak. And I would suggest that the next few years might be a little bit rough there. And there's always these geopolitical worries. The thought when we lost the fund was that geopolitics would sort of settle down as people increase their their living standards, et cetera. That theory is still true, but I would say it's not perfectly true. So I'm not saying we're not going to have any geopolitical confrontations with uh, China. We may, but I think it's in their best interest and our best interest to just keep our economies. So how has it changed in terms of the access to investments, the, the, the whole financial markets themselves. I mean, are you stock picking? Are you buying the market? Are you participating in private opportunities as well? No private opportunities. So all of our asset management is done out of our, uh, all of our asset management for all funds is done out of our London office. Uh, and I don't have anything to do with that. But I will tell you this, the access has grown enormously. When, when we first started, 
Uh, so the name of our fund is the China and Hong Kong Fund. And what we were trying to say is that the best way to invest is through Hong Kong. And that was very true then. It's not as true now because the access has been opening up, but it's still not perfect. So we still tend to skew towards uh, Hong Kong. And it's all, everything we do is publicly listed. Okay. And, w- and what about the competition side? Obviously, you know, China's been, to your point, a growing economy for a, a number of years now, especially in the last 10 or 20, it's, it's grown astronomically, huge GDP numbers, huge amount of growth and innovation occurring. Have you seen more competitors entering into the space? Do you think that's good for your business? Is it, is it been taking away from your business? I think it's good for the industry. It does, it does, well, it means we have less market share. So yes, it's not good for our personal business, but you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. And so you're long-term bullish as I am, I, I am as well. I think, you know, once you have given people a quality of life, you know, domestically, this burgeoning middle-class there, they're going to expect to continue to grow and I had somebody on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about demand within the energy sector. And once people find out that you can have indoor plumbing, air conditioning, nice cars, they want those things, right? And to your point, it's a huge population that needs to be provided for long-term. Yeah, yeah no, and that, that middle class in China is growing rapidly and there's a, a, a large uh, fluent section as well of the um, population. Yeah, this is not a short-term story in that we knew that we wanted to find it. We've been saying that from day one, that this is a long-term story, long-term theme, and it's been playing out that way. Notwithstanding the fact that, as we said, there are periods of upheaval and um, market down brass, and some of those have been severe. I mean, the late 90s were not very good for all of Asia because of that Asia financial crisis. And any thought at any point to enter into different markets in Southeast Asia? Well, we do have some Pan-Asia mutual funds. Got Um, it. Yeah, uh, and we have uh, in our smart ETFs lineup, we have the um, uh, Asia Pacific Dividend Builder ETF. And uh, dividends in Asia are a little bit different. They, they tend to pay them uh, in a more lumpy fashion on an annual basis. They tend to focus more on uh, payout rate, uh, but there's some very good dividend opportunities in Asia. Let's pivot to innovation, since that's the second megatrend that you referenced a big word that can mean many things to many different people. Yeah. I think your point that you made in your initial remarks about how this pace of change, this exponential growth that is inherently in the nature of technology is exciting, but also very scary to people. And I think that's what we're seeing play out, especially in the US. Not everyone feels comfortable with how quickly things are changing and, and happening, be it vaccinations, be it social media, be it technology, and then it will kind of pivot to energy and how they work together. But how did you initially think about innovation as a theme and how did you explain it to investors? Well, I should give you a little bit of background on me. I, I was a history major in college and my area of specialty was the history of science and technology. And the one thing I knew about technology was that um, people struggled with it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, this goes way back in human history, but there were, there were improvements to the plow. And you would have thought that improvements to the plow would have been welcome. Uh, but there was, there was a certain constituency that sort of was against the improvements to the plow, which makes no sense to me. But if you look at the history of technology, there are always people who are 
against, by the way, this is a, a, a minority segment. Let's not overstate this, but there, there are always people who are sort of against uh, technology. And, and the thing that fascinated me was not the technology itself, but how society adapts to, and you know, what are the cultural and business and social implications of technology. And I'll give you the, just the most obvious example. Uh, when the internet started to appear on the scene uh, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and particularly as we you know, got through the 90s, uh, there was all this excitement about it. And people were sort of thinking, well, you know, there's this going to happen, that's going to happen. But nobody could foresee certain things that actually did happen, one of which was social media. Another good example is, is the cell phone and texting. Uh, the cell phone was a very expensive item uh, early in its development. And Japan gave the cell phone basically free texting, which didn't come to other parts of the world till later. And what immediately happened was uh, the schoolgirls started texting like crazy. Well, nobody thought that was going to happen. And then we get into this century, and I don't think anybody saw where we were going to go with social media. And you can have issues with social media or not, but, and I get it. But it's clearly an adaptation or usage that's had cultural and societal effects and commercial effects that we didn't necessarily see coming. So that sort of fascinated me. And I, because of this, I was a reader in the 90s of Wired magazine. And Wired wasn't just about the tech. It was about the questions I was asking. What are the social, cultural, political, commercial implications of all this technology and change? And... Um, one day I came home and uh, it was, this is in 1998, there was a, the way a magazine had arrived and it was about the, they had a, a cover story about the, the new innovation index they were going to have, the Wired Index, they call it. And that sort of got me thinking and eventually led to the launch of the Global Innovators Fund. That there was a concept here that people would understand and, and an opportunity for them to, to make money investing in some of this innovation. And I should say innovation to us is not the same as it is to many of our competitors out there. So a lot of people think about innovation as disruption. And we think there's a heck of a lot more to innovation than just disruption. And we sort of classify it into a couple of different buckets, but one of them is incremental. So an incrementally um, innovative company is one that is just continuously spending money on R&D, continuously funding new ideas, and continuously innovating even though those might be small innovations. Um, and what we've discovered is, and there's a, a fair amount of academic literature to support this notion, that companies that innovate end up with a competitive advantage in, in the commercial market, marketplace. And there's other academic studies which support the idea that if you do innovate, that competitive advantage translates into your stock price. So. You don't need to be looking at just the disruptors. There's a whole series of companies that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being innovative. Uh, certainly not the way that some companies are, are disruptive innovators, but that there are companies that continuously innovate, put money into R&D, and expand their market share. They have uh, a bit of a moat around them. They enjoy faster sales growth, and they tend to enjoy uh, wider profit margins. And interestingly enough, a couple of the studies point out that when things go bad, when the, when the economy is weak, the innovative companies tend to grow their market share and maintain their profit margins. Um, so anyway, that's the whole concept behind uh, our Global Innovators Fund, which is in the Guinness Atkinson Funds range. And that's actually worked out pretty well. That fund has a long-term track record. And um, 
we're quite pleased with it. And so are our investors. I'm a believer. I think, you know, tech and innovation are going to be the future. What are the lessons you've learned? You, you mentioned 1998, obviously the tech bubble coming and going, the recent sell-offs in, in big tech over the last six, 12 months. Lessons learned, what you see on the horizon, you're, you're obviously long-term bullish on the space, but I'm, I'm curious and maybe how you think about allocation and diversification given everything happening today. Sure. You mean in, in that fund or just generally? I, I think just general concepts of how you think about tech and- Yeah, yeah. okay. The first thing is we believe firmly that valuation matters. So when we talk about innovation or tech, there's some big names out there that we don't own in our, some of our funds, uh, simply because to us, valuation is very, very important. And I'll be honest, that's meant we've missed out on some stocks that have done quite well. Uh, but in the long run, we think that serves us well. The other thing we do in our funds is we are not, we're investing in roughly equal weights. So our stocks tend to have either, our ETFs or funds tend to have either 30 or 35 holdings. So we, we try to equally weight them. Now, they're never perfectly equal for a variety of reasons, not the least of which they tend to move up and down against each other. But that roughly means we have three, three plus percent. And as they creep up and down, maybe 4% in any individual stock. But what that means is we're not ever going to have our performance driven by one or two stocks in either direction. Um, but it puts a huge premium. If we want to have a good performing fund, it puts a huge premium on getting the whole portfolio right. We find that having a strict number of holdings and, and roughly equal weights uh, is both a good way to diversify or reduce our risk, and it puts a premium on our best ideas. That makes sense. And those things are a little bit unique because most fund managers like to put overweight the ones they like the best, which means if they get that wrong, that's a problem. Um, or they like the market cap weight, which we don't do. And you, you made a point when I was doing my homework, I, I wrote down that you like established companies that consistently innovate. And I think oftentimes when we think about innovation in tech, we think about these new up and coming companies that are de novo, that are taking market share from others or creating a brand new market. Could you maybe kind of tease out a little bit more how you think about underwriting these firms and a misconception that many people have when it comes to innovation? Yeah, innovation can be below the waterline. Um, and innovation often isn't even seen. And I'll give you an example. One of the stocks we had early on in the Global Innovators Fund was um, Walmart. And in Walmart, people think about low prices, et cetera. But what they don't understand is what was behind those low prices. How were they able to achieve it? And the big innovation they came up with was um, very strong inventory management and, and very little floor space in each store devoted to inventory. That meant that they were utilizing their real estate more efficiently, getting more sales per square foot, which is a retail metric. And that volume allowed them to lower their prices. And of course, then it just became a self-fulfilling cycle. Another example is um, Toyota, uh, which is credited with inventing the just-in-time delivery metric and uh, or concept. And um, by the way, that's now perfectly well accepted. In fact, it, it's, we may be turning the cycle on that because of the shortages we're having now, but that's another story. But for many years, Toyota was, was better able to manage their capital and um, build cars more efficiently, which of course gave them either a margin or pricing edge in the marketplace. So there are just two examples of 
stuff that you wouldn't necessarily know about if you were a consumer. You wouldn't necessarily care about it. All you see is the end result. And we find that certain companies just continuously innovate. And the two examples I gave you purposely were not tech companies. We often think about innovation as just tech. Tech is a large part of it, to be clear. Uh, and a lot of the companies that are innovating aren't tech companies, but they're using technology to give them a competitive edge. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Let's pivot to energy. So we're seeing this play out in real time in Europe where they have, you know, made a deal with the devil with Russia and they're paying the price in their economies and their, frankly, their security on a national sovereign basis. The U.S. has gone through a transition where we were a net importer. Now we're a net exporter of energy. I think maybe food and water security and and energy are the most exciting places right now um, uh, to be an investor. Let's start with traditional energy. What's the state of play? How are you all thinking about peak oil, peak demand, this shift away from globalization across the board? Okay, so let's just first talk about energy demand um, going forward. We have a sustainable energy ETS, an alternative energy mutual fund, and a global energy mutual fund, and a global energy mutual fund is, a, is an oil and gas fund. So say, well, you've got both solar and wind and sustainable and traditional fossil fuels in your lineup. What is your view on these? Well, um, our view is that global energy demand is going to grow for much of the rest of the century. And it's going to grow because there's population growth. The population growth is slowing. Uh, it's not huge, but it's meaningful. Um, but more importantly, the average GDP um, per capita GDP is growing as well. So there's going to be increased demand. Um, that demand uh, is going to stretch uh, the fossil fuel industry, which is what we're seeing right now. Uh, and as we replace uh, fossil fuel sustainable energy, we sort of need both through this transition is the point of getting at. So this is not going to play out in the next few years. If you look at the Fossil fuel usage, and you mentioned peak peak fossil fuel. We sort of modeled this, and you can just sort of see that we're about to hit peak fossil fuel usage, which is a good thing. But when I say peak, that's a little bit of a misnomer because it's really a very slow rolling over at the plateau. So around 2023, 2024, 2025, depending on what your assumptions are, we're going to start to see fossil fuel use decline. It's going to be replaced with sustainable energy. And when I say sustainable energy, I'm talking about solar, uh, wind primarily. Those two things are going to really do a lot to replace it. And then I should add, there's an important theme that's sort of a key component of what we're doing. Because of the pressure on the energy industry right now, and because of concerns about global warming, Efficiency is really important. So there's a lot of movement uh, to upgrade a grid, upgrade the grid to increase efficiency, LED lights, insulation. 
Those are not small things. You're not very exciting. They're not very sexy, but they are a part of our investment thesis at the moment. But going forward, what's going to happen? And this, by the way, is one of the biggest is that it's going to occur in our lifetimes. And it'll be profound is that we are going to move away from fossil fuels and a hundred percent renewable, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time, but the growth that's going to come in the next few years to both replace fossil fuels and to add to the global uh, energy generation, fossil, I mean, um, sustainable energy is going to have a, a very long and sustained growth period ahead of it. I, I agree with you. Um, for the I, I should, by the way, I don't want to cut you off, but one of the things yeah. I should talk about here is there's a lot of talk about the political initiatives around, uh, you know, global warming and, and I get that. And, and then the, the reason of the inflation reduction. That's all that, that's, that's just sort of adding to the tailwind. The real argument for sustainable energy is not government or policy dependent. It's, it's cost driven. It's economic driven. So the price of um, sustainable energy has dropped enormously in the last few years. So solar is down 5%. The cost of solar installed all in levelized cost of energy is down 85% since 2010. Wind is down 69% since 2010. And battery costs are down 89%. So what does that mean? That means if you're about to build, you're, you're a utility company, you need to add generation capacity, uh, you have a choice. Now, by the way, this, this decision is not a simple black or white decision because power plants come in different flavors and obviously the weather is different in different parts of the world. Um, but by and large, for most places in the world, I'm talking 75 plus or so, it's cheaper to build a sustainable energy facility of some sort, either wind, solar, or battery, or all, or some combination of those, than it is to build a natural gas, or obviously not coal, um, or oil, or any other form of um, electricity generation. And that trend is going to continue. The price of these technologies continues to decline. Um, now, I'm not saying they're going to go down another 90% in the next decade, but they're already cheaper most other forms of electricity generation. There's a few cases where natural gas is very competitive, but what's going to drive this is cost and economics. So if you're a businessman, and I'll give you one example. So I, I sort of built this model out a few years ago where I said, well, where are battery prices going? And, 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 and one of the types of electricity generating plants is called a beaker plant. So the beaker plant comes online a few hours a day when energy um, demand is really high. Peaker plants are very expensive to operate because they're idle most of the time. You've got to uh, amortize the capital cost. So it occurred to me, I look at this, nobody's ever built another peaker plant. They'd rather go out and buy batteries. And indeed, that's what's happening. There are, you, know, you can go Google this, but uh, there's, there's companies, including Tesla, which have provided uh, grid-level industrial-sized battery packs to utility companies. So that they can continue their other types of plants, their base load or, or load leveling plants, uh, when they're not needed, they fund the, they, they fill the batteries and in, in the peak, they draw from the batteries. That's a lot cheaper than building a peaker plant and operating. So I'm all in favor of these government you know, policies, and I think they're great. But the main thing that's riding this is money. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of rhetoric that gets wrapped up in, in almost a personal cultural narrative around pivoting away from fossil fuels to alternatives. But 
at the end of the day, the consumer is going to be the one who dictates what these big corporations do. Obviously, government incentives have a part to play, but if you produce a widget that is cheaper and more energy efficient, the consumer is going to want that, right? And I think, you know, we're seeing this demand for EVs spike and it will be painful, right? I'm not trying to say that the charging stations and the infrastructure are going to be day one there. It'll be painful, that transition. But when you look at 250,000 people on the wait list for an F-150 Lightning, people want this and, the, you know, corporations are going to give it to them. By the way, let, let's talk about that pain you mentioned, because, um, well, before we do, I just, I think the biggest thing that's going to happen in our lifetime, at least going forward, is the transition or electrification of the fleet uh, globally. And um, you, you talk about the pain. I've been driving an electric vehicle for the last decade, and we've been a 100% electric vehicle household for the last six years or so. And one of the things that caused me to go electric wasn't a great concern for the environment, not that I'm not concerned, but that wasn't my primary motive. My primary motive was I hate going to the gas station. And what people don't understand about electric vehicles until they get them is you don't ever go to the gas station. Now, occasionally I have to charge if I take a long road trip and we've taken some long road trips in the car and it does take a little bit more time, but it's way more time to be able to charge at home every day. Uh, now, this argument is very strong for people who have their own home and have a charging facility at home. Um, it doesn't work as well if you live in an apartment building or multifamily unit, you don't have easy charging. And then you raise the point that there might not be enough charging infrastructure out there. You know, we went through this before with the, um, with gas stations and, um, we, we built gas stations pretty quickly. The first gas station was in 1913 and there were 500,000 vehicles in that gas station. So what did people do before that? They went to the, uh, Believe it or not, the hardware store, the grocery store to buy gas in bulk. I mean, it didn't come in a container. You had to bring your own container. I mean, it was, it was very less than optimal, let's put it that way. But my point is the infrastructure will come as the demand comes forward. And I'm not saying this is a trivial problem. It is just, I'm just saying it will be solved. The real question behind EVs is their cost. The cost is a function of the battery. And battery costs are declining. And once we get below $100 per kilowatt hour, the um, most people think that the, that the electric vehicle will be at cost parity with an internal combustion engine vehicle at that price. We're very close to that now. And I think once people realize that electric vehicles are better in every respect, they're cheaper to operate, they're cheaper to maintain, they drive more smoothly, they're quiet, they don't pollute. They're more convenient if you can charge at home. As people know who've ever been in a Tesla, they're, they're quicker and zippier. Even, even the non-performance ones are zippier because it's an instant response. Once they realize that they're better and that they're cheaper, it's game over. I mean, this is going to happen quickly. And you mentioned the Ford F-150. I mean, that is a great example because a lot of people, until that car came out and the truck came out, were sort of urban you know, commuters. And there's a large segment of people who like and want pickup trucks. And once those guys get a taste of what that truck is like, that's, I can say it's going to be game over for the internal combustion engines. Yeah. I mean, my, my takeaway is like many things, 
especially in America, we we think it's never going to happen, that this change will never come, it's taking yeah, forever. Yeah. Then there's a certain pivot point and it enters into this land of inevitability. Yeah. And you know, way, I, so. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, one of the things in my head is that um, a couple of years ago, I kept reading these articles that EVs are never going to take off. They're less than 1% of um, market share. And, and all this excitement about Tesla was completely misplaced and we're never going to go EV. And I, of course, I knew that was wrong because, well, I'm a believer for one, but I actually had the experience of living with one. Um, and now what's funny is the narrative is completely flipped. It's now a question of, well, it's obvious this is going to happen. The question is how soon. And, uh, you know, it's a typical S curve of adoptions, very slow at the beginning. And then suddenly it goes nearly vertical. And then at the very top, it tails out again. That is exactly what's going to happen with electric vehicles. And so we're projecting that 20% of all cars sold in the world uh, will be by 2025 will be electric and then 50% in 2030 and hundred percent by 2050. Now our projections were until recently, one of the more aggressive sets, not hugely aggressive. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, I think our estimates are way understating it. Um, just an example, Norway is at 65%. Now there's some reasons for that. Still, that's a pretty impressive number. China hit 26% market share for EVs in July, um, a couple months ago. So here's my point, and I think this is what you were trying to say. This, you know, waiting for technology to happen and get here takes forever. But once it does, it, it can go a lot faster than you think. And uh, it, it, EVs will be, well, they're already ubiquitous in certain parts of the country, but they're going to dominate going forward. And I think the whole fleet will be 100% EV well before 2050, um, meeting sales. It takes a while to convert the whole fleet because the, the life value, the, the lifetime of a car. Um, but we should also talk about autonomous vehicles because I think the same concept is true there. Um, autonomous vehicles are disappointing people at the moment. Uh, you know, there's this feeling that, oh, we'll never get this solved. We'll never figure out what to do if a ball rolls in the street. All these edge cases people come up with. Um, and again, I'll be honest with you. Elon thought we would have these in 2018, and here we are in 2022, and we're, we're still not there. But what do I mean we're still not there? Well, we're talking about level five. A car can go from anywhere in the U.S. to anywhere else in the U.S. or anywhere in the world that it can drive to. That's not immediately on the horizon. But that doesn't mean that autonomous vehicles aren't out there. As you know, there's autonomous vehicles in slash Chandler. So we're talking about transportation as a service. You get on your phone, you ask for a ride sharing, and a car comes and picks you up, there's no driver. There's no safety driver, there's no driver. That's happening in certain parts of the U.S., including San Francisco and um, Arizona. It's also happening in certain uh, countries outside the U.S. Limited use, ring fence, I get that, but there's also trucks driving um, on highways without drivers, or they're ready to go without drivers. So to say that this isn't happening... It's just taking a while to get there. But let me talk about what happens when it does. So let's just assume it takes a few years, but we do get to the point where you can get into a car and it will drive you wherever you want to go um, without a driver or any intervention. First of all, that's going to save lives. There are a lot of... The computer's not going to drive drunk, let's put it that way. It won't fall asleep at the wheel. But it also will bring a lot of people into the workplace and the economy. So access to transportation 
restricts the young, the old, the poor, and the disabled. And those people being brought into the economy, both as workers and consumers, is a great thing. Uh, and really, that's, that's, not, that's where we can talk about the societal benefits. I'm talking about the commercial benefits there, but it can't be a bad thing to have more people involved um, in, on all levels in our country. But now let's talk about the cost, because the cost is dramatic. Right now, if you own and operate your own vehicle, all in, capital costs, gasoline, taxes, you name it, it's about a dollar a mile. And if you want to get an Uber to come take you somewhere for the sake of argument, it's a dollar a mile. If we go to a transportation as a service model, it's 10 cents a mile. Uh, and maybe it's a little bit more than that, but, but the estimates I've seen are 10 cents a mile. But even at 15 cents or 20 cents, a mile, that's a huge reduction in cost. And there's a professor at Stanford, Tony Seba, who believes that once this technology is available, people will no longer own their own car. They just won't. Now, by the way, when you tell this to people, they push back. That's all I'm, I, I, I got to own my own car. And maybe you will. But, but there's a good argument to be made that the majority of people are going to find the 10 cents a mile and getting their garage and freeing up all this parking space is going to be a trade-off worth having uh, to not own their own car because they can go wherever they want, whenever they want in, a, in an automated vehicle. So whether we go there or not, I don't know, but this gets back to my point from earlier. The technology, we can see where it's going, but we can't see for sure is how we're going to down to it. And that's what fascinates me. Jim, this has been a tremendous conversation. Your experience and kind of wealth of knowledge is great to hear. I'm curious to get to more of a personal side of things. As somebody who has huge amount of data input into their lives, you're on the cutting edge of investing. Uh, the asset management industry is changing a lot. It seems like it's a very volatile space to invest in. What are some things that you do every day that kind of bring you peace of mind, given everything that you have going on in your professional life? Uh, you mean non-work related? Correct. Yeah. That's a very interesting question. I, I, I came early in my career and like everybody else, very busy. And particularly when I was traveling, I would, you know, wake up and it'd be bedtime and it'd be hundred percent work. Um, and I said to myself early on, that's a mistake. And no matter how busy I am, even if I'm traveling, um, I try to give myself a minimum of 15 minutes of, of something that's just a hundred percent enjoyable and non-work. Now, if I'm at home and I'm working a regular work day, obviously it's considerably more than that, but I just make sure there's a little bit of that in every single day. And that has helped a lot. I don't vacation enough. My wife will tell you that. Um, and I need to change that, but I at least make sure that I have some time carved out every single day. Well, Jim, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It, it was great having you on. For our listeners, uh, please do leave us a review. Let us know the favorite part of the conversation with Jim. And if folks are interested in connecting with you, learning more about the firm, the different product offerings that you have, what's the best way for them to connect? So there's gafunds.com. Uh, that's our open and neutral lineup. And then we have smartetfs.etfs.com. Um, and that's where we have our ETFs. And um, we, I, I'm a big believer in the asset management business and the value is provided across the industry for investors, but I do believe that ETS are a better mousetrap. So we're in the process and it's a long-term process of converting our opening funds into ETFs. So we did that with two of them 18 months ago. Um, it, well, there's more to come over time. Um, 
but yeah, so our, our ETF lineup is at smartetfs.com. Jim, thanks again. We'll have to do another one to figure out what we got right and what we got wrong <laughs> in six or 12 months. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.